Hi folks and thanks for listening to this Tortoise Shack podcast. A little bit of housekeeping before we kick off. As we, as you probably know, we rely entirely on you to keep the lights on, the mics on, and the conversations like the one you're about to listen to keep happening. The way you help us keep going is you click the link that says patreon.com forward slash tortoise shack. It is the price of a fancy cup of coffee, maybe a scone once a month to you, but to us it literally pays the bills and keeps this little struggling independent platform going. We don't have the budget for flip-flops, nor uh, do we have the budget for Six Nations or Champions League tickets. We barely have enough money to pay for our own server. But we do pay for our own server because we believe independent media matters more now than ever. So if you like what we do or you hate what we do, but you get something out of it, please give something back. Join us for a month. That's all I'm asking. There's no long-term contract. You can try it out, get access to tons of exclusive content, including a podcast I did just a few hours ago with the workers in Iceland within the store in Talbot Street looking for unpaid wages. That's available right now on the Patreon feed for our members, alongside over a thousand of our back catalogue, all in one place and entirely plea-free. I would love you to join us. I won't lie. We need you to join us. So if you can, one more time, patreon.com forward slash tortoise I'm shutting up now, I promise. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber Podcast. My name is Tony Groves and I am back flying solo this morning, folks. And I'm delighted to be rejoined on the podcast for the first time in, in a few weeks only uh, by our good friend, Professor Richard Murphy in the UK. Richard, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's great to see you. How are you keeping? I'm really well. Um, a bit tired. Um, I've done a hell of a lot over the last week or so. Um, disturbing the peace on Twitter. But yeah. um, that's fine. Um, that apart, I'm fine. Thank you. Yeah, look, um, I, I, I will. We, we may, we touch a little bit on social media before the end of this, but I want to ask you a couple of things um, that, that that struck me over the last few weeks, and I've, I've loosely termed this category sort of war on poor. But it reminded me recently of uh, when your good friend in the Bank of England uh, came out and said the wages were too high, <laughs> and that's what was causing the inflationary pressures. I don't know if you saw it, but this was now. Uh, the Intercept did a great story where they delivered minutes from uh, Fed and Bank uh, Bank of America meeting. It wasn't the actual central Fed. It was a, a state um, office meeting where they said one of the problems that was causing inflation was that for them, employment was too low. Uh, it seems the same sort of class of thing, you know, make them more, make them more unemployed and pay them less. And this is what they're saying out loud. Uh, it's it's a bit scary. That is clearly a war on on people, working poor or poor people, essentially, no? Look, this is exactly what the theory says that central banks should do. Let's not beat around the bush. If you actually decode what neoclassical, neoliberal economics says is the reason for raising interest rates, it is to reduce demand in the economy, to force the real disposable incomes of people down and to force some people into unemployment because whatever it is that they were working at is no longer required because people can't afford to buy it. And as a result, it is said that this will reduce overall aggregate demand in the economy and as a result, prices will fall. The only problem with that theory is, well, it's bullshit. Um, that's a technical term. Um, but if we go into slightly more detail as to why that's bullshit, there isn't a transmission mechanism to make that work. By that, I mean that we can't be clear that actually raising interest rates does actually achieve this resu- result, at least in a way that reduces inflation. Now, it does seem to produce the result that people are undoubtedly under enormous financial stress. 
it does undoubtedly reduce people's real incomes because you've only got to look around the world and see that everywhere people are complaining that their real incomes are low. And it does undoubtedly produce downward pressure because of the political rhetoric of employers matching that at the Bank of England to say we can't afford to pay you, even though we can put our prices up by 10%. We can only give you 6%. Where does the difference go? Guess what? There aren't that many options available inside a profit and loss account, and the answer is the bottom line, which is theirs. So there is this pressure going on to actually reduce the real incomes of working people. I call it class warfare. I don't see why I shouldn't. It's class mm. warfare of the type that Warren Buffett once described by his class, the wealthy, on people who have to work for a living. And this is what the central bankers are doing. There's no beating around the bush here. That is the aim. And it seems that governments around the world are willing to join in with it, even though it isn't working. Inflation is not falling in most countries as desired, particularly in the UK. Better in the Eurozone, but still not ideal. Yeah, and I think it's the crucial point here is that obviously it's not working, but it's also storing up problems in other aspects of it. We've seen it in terms of the, the, the effect it's having on credit into the economy. We've seen the effect now that it's having on uh, economic growth is wiping it out, uh, and it's and it's definitely causing um, hardships where it comes to people who have to pay rents and mortgages, uh, and in particularly, you know, there is a pent up disaster in many things because we've spoken before on this. Many people in the UK are on fixed term rates, you know, the two year rates, five year rates, and there is genuine, genuinely numbers, hundreds of thousands of these accounts that are. Um, a debt tsunami is probably a bit too strong, but they are pent up now. And then when they come back to market, it's a very different interest rate environment they'll be coming into. And those mortgages could become distressed overnight, Richard. Well, look, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, there are a number of pent up problems in this. One is undoubtedly the mortgage market. It is normal in the UK to now take a fixed rate, fixed term mortgage deal. Um two, three, four, five years. Um, I know people have got 10-year mortgages. I advise some people to take them before um, this debacle happened. Uh, they're very grateful. I think they owe me a pint uh, because they took you know fixed-rate mortgages for 10 years at 2%, and boy, are they winning mm. now. The point about this, though, is that on the moment, less than 2 million mortgages have been refinanced since the Bank of England started increasing interest rates. By the end of 2024, it's thought about 4.4 million mortgages will be refinanced. And overall, there's coming on for 10 million mortgages to be refinanced eventually over the next few years. If the Bank of England has its way and it keeps interest rates high, actually becoming positive real interest rates, in other words, the rate of interest will remain high even when inflation falls, then all those people are going to face enormous financial pressure for two reasons. One, of course, obviously, they're in cost of borrowing has gone up dramatically. And this translates directly into increased rental prices as well, because mm. most buy-to-let landlords, which is most of the rental market in the UK now, have mortgages and therefore trying to pass on the cost. But second, and this is just as important, it seems that somehow or other, both bankers and even trade unions have forgotten that if you go and have inflation in a year. Yeah, but let's take a, a, a simple example here. Um, we have a year where there's no inflation, zero, and mm. there's no real pay rises. Then we get 10% inflation, but we get a 7% pay rise. The year after, if we have no inflation and we have no pay rise, 
then the 3% shortfall in the second year also exists in the third year and every year thereafter. In other words, there's a fundamental shift in returns, not just in the year where there's the shortfall, but every year thereafter. And so people are in real terms going to be worse off in the long term and therefore unable to pay their debts. And this is the making of a long-term crisis because wages will be too low. People won't be able to pay debts. There will be stagnant growth. There won't be the incentive to create new employment, saying God knows what else. And that's because wages are actually too low. We aren't suffering a problem in our economies now because we've got wages too high. We're looking at a, an absolute potential meltdown because wages are too low, because inflation matching pay rises haven't been made. And that's a crisis in the making, which I don't know how are we going to communicate the fact that this has to be corrected by real pay rises? And you could just see the politicians. Well, look, inflation's fallen to 2%. Why do you want a 5% pay rise? Well, that's because I was 3% down in the year when inflation was high. I need to put it right now. But we can't afford it anymore, so you can't have it. Well, how am I going to pay my bills then? We don't care. Inflation's down. You can't have your money. And this is the narrative that's going to happen. And I think that's really, really worrying. Yeah, and I, I hadn't thought about it in in sort of that twenty four month, thirty six month cycle. But I'd heard um, Michael Taft, a, a an economist with Zip2, make something a similar point in terms of how you know he was talking about um, our previous budget and how the increases that were given to people who were reliant on some form of social transfer, be it you know a, a rental supplement top, top up, they were all left behind because the growth in that was 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 already behind where the market is. And then this year they go, well, we're going to throw 15 quid on as opposed to a tenner. And you're going, so in real terms, I'm actually down still 20 quid because you failed to act last year on the yes. on the big. And, you know, yeah, so we don't, because we have a tendency to just look in the here and now and not understand that. But I, I'm, I'm conscious of the other side of this. And it's a strange question to put to you. But I do think there's... Um, in these catastrophes or in these issues, there may be opportunities and, and sometimes... We, we you know we talked about particularly in Ireland and the UK the how how much um, our personal wealth is is actually uh, it's built up in 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 homes property owning property is 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 a much bigger par- portion of personal wealth in both Ireland and the UK than then say Germany or or you know some of the other Nordics where where maybe no no maybe natural to actually rent for your the rest of your life and you'll have full rental protections we don't have that sort of stuff but within that. We've been talking about the need to have um, affordable housing. We keep saying we need affordable housing, we need to build and we need affordable homes that people can purchase when they have to be affordable. And I know I spoke to Toby Lloyd a few months ago and he'd worked in Theresa May's, um, uh, uh, I've, got, I've got to say it's shambolic, but yet it makes some of the ones that came afterwards look like bloody um, picnics. So, so, but he worked on that and he said in that, in that crisis, there may be a, a an opportunity to make housing genuinely affordable. But I put it to you, Richard, that I don't know if people are really serious about it because there's a large, a large, well, it's a small majority of people in the UK and Ireland who continue who still actually own their own homes. And I don't know if they feel it's in their interest to see their house prices soften and those house prices come down. And then, you know, so, so it becomes a political um, issue more so than just uh, a, a supply and demand issue. Well, one of the core problems here, and it is a really significant problem with regard to this whole process of interest rate rises, is that not only in the UK, and I think this is probably replicated in this issue of fixed rate mortgages, people not therefore seeing the full impact of any change in interest rate as it happens. 
there's a delay mechanism built in because of fixed rate mortgages, very strong in the UK market in particular. But also, there's quite a lot of people who own their homes outright. Um, about 50% of homes in the UK are owned by people. Well, oh, hands up here, like me. Um, mm. I first got my first mortgage 40 years ago. You know, I'm old, I'm 65, I don't feel old, but I did actually get my first mortgage in 1983. And I mm. haven't moved so many times that I've needed to keep on remortgaging so often. And actually, now the mortgage has been repaid. I mean, I'm bloody lucky. Let's put. Yeah. not beat around the bush. Um, I know my good fortune, but there are a lot of people like me who don't think they've got good fortune. They think I earned that. Well, actually, in total, I paid in mortgage repayments nothing even closely approximating to the current value of my home, according to markets. And yet those people say, it's all mine. It was paid for with my own hard effort. I want to keep it. I've got to see house prices maintained. The government should be doing something to support house price initiatives, which is why the government in the UK and in other countries pumps money into the market to help banks lend money to first-time buyers. Nothing to do with helping first-time buyers, by the way, but entirely intended to keep up the price of properties. Well, I'm afraid to say the likes of me are going to have to actually face uh, reality um, and say uh, our house prices are probably going to have to fall in value. Now, this is going to be tough for some people because they think those houses are their pension pot. Um, they're going to release equity or they're going to downsize to pay for their pension because they haven't provided for that. And I think that's a real potential crisis in its own right, but that's mm -hmm. a reality. And then there's the other dimension of this is actually how do we manage a steady decline in house prices if we can manage it, which is something we simply aren't used to doing. We're used to prices climbing steadily, but actually we're used to markets falling off cliffs. They aren't very good at the downside uh, process. And is there a way in which actually it is possible for people to actually move from being basically in what is owner supposedly occupied housing, but with a big mortgage into something which is affordable housing, but which may be the same house. Yeah. Because we are building enough houses for this transition to take place easily. Um, we might need a bigger market adjustment to uh, unaffordability that is actually available by simply putting, building new affordable homes. Because most affordable homes that are built are too small hmm. for people with a reasonable sized family. And also right now, if you are on benefits in the UK, which include rent provision, you can actually only afford about 5% of available properties on the rental market. So we need to have some serious thinking about how there can be an adjustment. And that may be that the government will begin to have to look at how it begins to take partial ownership of properties yeah. that people can't afford to live in, but nonetheless need to live in and where the government takes a stake in that property to compensate for the fact that the owner can't pay the whole mortgage. And we get some form of social joint ownership, which is a gradual transition towards affordability and affordable housing in the long term, but which doesn't lead to complete market collapse, including therefore banking collapse, which is the follow-on. Yeah, yeah. And, but but I'm, I'm interested. So, so we have to have big thinking, which accepts Something which is really uncomfortable to politicians and actually quite a lot to political activists and those who are idealists around these things, which is some degree of compromise. Now, I like perfect solutions like anybody else is a political idealist. The reality is that 
Uh, perfect solutions are in short supply. We have yeah, to no, I, I, I can't, I, I can't, I can't come in in the morning and say build one hundred and fifty thousand uh, social and affordable homes, um, and I can't demand that we stop building. You know, for the private re- rental market, I can't, I can't. Like there are certain constraints put on that, and you're, you're right when you say there has to be some sort of compromise. But I'm very interested in things, and I don't know. Um, I had the conversation with the minister for housing a couple of months ago in the chair to my left, and I said to him that you know his um first purchase scheme that where the state will help people will, will just inflate prices and you yes. okay, had the exact same um, yes so we, we, we came out with this model and now they're advertising it on the radio now saying have you got your mortgage approval are you just a little bit short the government of Ireland stand ready to bridge that gap with the and so, so this is another way of keeping those house prices high because it means that the, the banks can then still lend at those high volumes and the property prices on on your brochure still read high but there was one interesting thing, Richard, that happened because of our housing crisis and our, let's face it, our homelessness crisis here. We're now at over 12,500 people officially homeless, which is which is just disgusting in a country that like is boasts of its um, GDP prowess and, and, and how sensational we all are. And has a lot of spare, spare housing as well. Let's Huge. Oh, like, like 65,000 vacant units. Like it's, yeah. it's staggering, but but, <laughs> I know but, that. but but when you but when you put that then in context, one of the things they did do, and this comes to what you one of your suggestions is, they said tenant in situ scheme. So if we're saying private landlords are leaving, um, the state can buy the buy the property from the 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 the, the private landlord who's leaving, and the tenant then becomes a social tenant in a, a, with a lifelong rental because they're then and you know so there's no need to go on a housing waiting list. They can just transfer across, and the state can do that and. Things like that, actually, what they do, they do two things. They help um, increase our social housing stock, which is too low at around 8%. It needs to be yep. at least 16 to 20%. It helps yep. It helps start that kickstart. Yep, at least. And then we, and then it, actually by putting that floor as a 20% floor as opposed to a ceiling, it stops what that you were talking about coming off a cliff because house prices, when they, when they soften then, if the state is continually putting out 20% of the, of the volume of the, of the, of the stock, there's, there's, we've seen it in countries that, that have been done it successfully. That when they fall, they don't fall as um, precipitously as they do in the UK and Ireland currently. Precisely. And I just think you know, you, it's a really interesting thought um, that you give that you give me now, whereby this scheme that that's not what they intended it for, but it maybe maybe is the kernel of the beginning of something that could could work. You know, I haven't spent a lot of time working on this, and I think it would be quite fun to model it um, because I think it's quite important. Um, and it's important for another longer term reason, uh, which I really, you know, I'll just throw into the conversation. Um, and that is that all our banks are in a really bad way. Yeah. They don't admit it. They look as though they're in a great way. Well, actually, they don't because their share prices do not reflect their asset values. Now, there's a good reason for that. And um, that is that actually 85% of bank lending, actually, I think this is pretty consistent in both Ireland and UK. Um, is against property security. Um, unlike many countries, if we look, you know, as Germany as ever is the alternative example, bank lending is not lent for property purposes, or if it is, it's for very long-term lending, but not for the type of lending that we have. It's instead lent for productive capital. But in the UK and Ireland, it's largely lent against property security, and that's true for businesses as well. Now, there's two fundamental problems with this. One, actually, are mortgages at current rates serviceable for life because frankly mortgages are lasting for life now we're talking about people extending their mortgage Mm -hmm. periods 
beyond 30 plus years um, and heading for 40 years. And this is like, you know, Bar- Boris, Boris, Boris Johnson suggested up to 75 at one stage before. Yeah, he, uh... I'd be crazy. This is into basically passing yeah, the debt on at the time you die uh, sort of thing. Um, and at the same time, um, so the, the domestic mortgage market is in trouble. But there's another fundamental problem in the whole property market. And that is, I've seen a survey and a banker told me this is true. They expect half their commercial properties to be underwater within 30 to 40 years. And they lend on this portfolio. And the only reason why they say these portfolios are of value is that bank lending to com- commercial companies is much shorter than on mortgages. They tend to yeah. lend on five to 10-year mo- loans at most. So they say, well, there's no problem because in five to 10 years, they're going to be above water. So what's the problem? Um, yeah, well, somebody's got to refinance that mortgage in five to 10 years. And it might be you. And you will eventually get a problem unless we actually do something about rising water levels, which they haven't built into their modeling of risk. Because they say we can get out first, assuming mm. that somebody else will take over the debt. If somebody else won't take over the debt, then the banks are in real deep water. Uh-uh, sorry, couldn't. I, it's, it's an uh, interesting because when you think about it, commercial property has already wobbled. Like the value of funds, a lot of them closed to withdrawals, which it's always a red flag. You know, closed yes. withdrawals, it's, yes. it's an immediate red flag. Um, we've seen, we're, we're talking about revaluations done on blue chip properties now, on uh, and, on commercial belts of properties, particularly UK. Um, seen some of the states um, that were famous for the growth in it. Uh, Arizona is, str- is struggling. Phoenix, you know, a boom city in, in the US, the, the commercial properties. A lot of this has been, and and... And then you have to factor in, as you said, the uh, the emergence, particularly in 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 say say parts of London, of uh, rising water. <laughs> you know, uh, oh, well, there's a big question: how long the Thames Barrage will actually protect London from flooding? That, and nobody is talking about reinvesting in it yet again. The failure of the state to supply the protection that is required to keep anything functioning. So we actually really have got a big crisis coming. So you know, we have the very short term one: I can't pay my mortgage. The one that is developing, more and more people can't pay their mortgage. The fact that the banks are there, the government isn't reacting to provide affordable housing. And in the longer term, the banks look pretty knackered, which is why their share prices are so bad anyway. And this is all waiting on a fuse. Just one of those has got to explode and the rest begin to implode. And that's the problem. And uh, I suppose this is a messy transition, but I, we have to we'll have to keep keep the water metaphor going because um, you wrote a thread that was one of the most read uh, things I've seen that produced me, and you've put out some mega threads on Twitter where you talked about the UK's um, water infrastructure and the privatisation model, how it's failed, and how it can be renationalised. I can tell you, ears prick up in Ireland once you mention water because it was the thing, it was the straw that broke the camel's back here. Um, they It brought out hundreds of thousands of people to the street. Uh, you know, like on a head per head count, it, it was as big as any people, anti, any anti-war march demonstrations that have been seen anywhere. And um, the mass non-payment of the bills just deadened it because no matter what they did, they sent bills to households and when they didn't come back, they weren't going to take 1.4 million householders to court. You know, it's like the equivalent of everybody stopping to pay the license fee. It was just a dead duck the moment that happened. Um, but we had a, I, I still have a screenshot of the letter because it's important that this that I point this out. When Irish water was established, there was there was a correspondence between Ireland and the EU because it was part of these things and what we're doing in stages of the bailout, how we're going to, you know, bring in new sources of revenue. And there was a sentence in one of the things from 
the desk of Simon Coveney. It wasn't signed by Simon Coveney. He was the minister in charge at the time. And the line was that uh, privatisation is ultimately envisaged. And, yeah. you know, that we now have a demand to put in the constitution that that can't happen. However, the UK went down that road. And not and, only the UK, let's be clear. Yes, okay. Northern Ireland still has the water charges inside the council tax. Yeah. So that's how it's paid in Northern Ireland. There is no such as such water bill. In Wales, there isn't a privatized water company. There is a not for profit socially owned company, although it has its own significant financial strength at the moment. And in Scotland, there's a dual model. The commercial water model, the commercial market is privatised and the domestic market is not. It's state-owned. It's only England, yeah, little England, dear old little England, um, which comes up with this absolutely mad, bonkers idea of privatising water altogether, which I think is only really shared with Chile in the world. You know, we're a bit of an outlier on this and it isn't working. That was the whole point of my report. Um, the report was going to be called Cut the Crap Accounting for Shit, but my co-director said that was too <laughs> unsubtle. So it's accounting for water. Um, well, there we go. Um, sometimes one has to listen to one's co-directors, but um, I did actually get in trouble on the BBC. I said shit on air at two o'clock in the afternoon. And oh, apparently dear. that's not allowed. No. Apparently that's not allowed. So nobody's ever heard the word. Um but they've, swam it, but they've swam in it. They've <laughs> swam in it now. And they really are. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. What could I have said? Oh, cut the crap accounting for feces. And would that yeah. be more acceptable just because I tidied up my language? The point about the report was that I did actually quite a lot of work. Um, behind the scenes, I am an academic. Um, this is part of an academic project I'm doing on how we might ac properly account for climate change and biodiversity change. And this is where this comes in. And we are looking at something called environmental sustainability, and the water companies were a perfect example. It so happened that this work, which had been going on for months, you know, literally looking at the accounts of the individual companies, building a model of the UK water industry, looking at its lack of sustainability, the fact that it can't actually afford to invest in um, the required capital to get rid of bluntly shit in UK waters and on UK beaches, which is what the problem is. And the fact that £260 billion of investment is required to do that, with the government saying, oh, £56 billion will do because we'll accept 30% of the shit remaining in 27 years' time, which I don't think the people of the UK will put up with because, frankly, that would... Can, I, can I just... Tourist you said 20, £26 billion worth of investment is required to... to £260 billion. £260 billion. So, by logic, that's... Well, five years of, say, the military spending. Yeah. That's what it is. Yeah. Five, five years military spending at, at, yeah, at 20, right. 2024 rates of 54 billion yeah. a year. Yeah. So it's there. They just yeah. want to put well, it in context. About big money. Yeah. Just put it in context. Um, yeah. One and a half years of the NHS. But actually, let's also put that in the context of the NHS. If you have read your history of public health in the UK, um, and this did affect Ireland as well, because at that point in time, we're talking about the late 19th century, uh, and Dublin and Belfast were obviously exponents of this. Um, the whole point was that the thing that changed public health more than anything had done before was the introduction of clean water supply and through pipes into houses and sewage, taking away the waste down another set of pipes. Those two things transformed public health in a way nothing had ever done before. This was the big dividend of the Industrial Revolution, in a way, was literally sewage, um, taking away the night soil, uh, which had previously been 
removed by hand, now literally flushed away. Now, that was what changed our life expectancies. Nothing has had the same impact. And this is important in the context of health. If this isn't spent in England and Wales, the risk is we won't have clean water because you can't keep on extracting dirty water full of shit from our rivers, which is where our water comes from. And then expect to return it and keep on doing that and not at some point have a health crisis as a consequence. I mean, I won't swim in the river, which is near my home, which are, by which I walk frequently because I'm a bird watcher. It's one of the ways I unwind. So most weekends you'll find me out and about in East Anglia somewhere watching birds and beside a river, most likely. And I won't swim in those rivers, even though those rivers are supposedly the clean water supply, which I then get through my tap. Uh, you know, ultimately, this isn't a viable model. Um, we have to clean up the rivers. And if it's going to cost 260 billion, it's got to be found. And yet the government says, no, the viability of our privatized water companies is more important than supplying clean water. Now, you can't get a stronger indicator of getting your priorities wrong than that. As yeah, concerned. that is just absolute political insanity. But we have Labour saying, oh, we can't afford to nationalise the water companies, hand-wringing Uriah Heap stuff, because it would cost too much taxpayers' money. And as I pointed out in the thread, I've actually now written on nationalisation. It doesn't cost any money. To no, no. I, I, let, let's go there because you've proven um, through, uh, you know, your painstaking research, your academic work, and you're looking at the balance sheets of these organizations, their share prices relative to their performance, relative to their their dividends. You you, you factored in all of the things that, that, that you know, this isn't um, Tony Groves uh, scribbling down on the back of a cigarette packet and, and saying, saying, Richard, I have an idea to save the world. Um, there, there's, there's a lot of research went into this. And you sort of said, well, not only will it not cost this money, it's it's either cost neutral or we're, or we're, or we're going to make out on this, really. Yeah. I mean, the reality is, I mean, you know, I actually started a Twitter thread saying, you know, normally you can just see that I'm a bit of a ranter, if you like. But on this stuff, actually, I've done this. I've bought and sold real companies. I am a professional chartered accountant. I've actually valued companies, offered opinion, even to courts, on what a company might be worth. So, you know, I know something about this field in a real professional sense. And yeah, you don't buy companies of this sort using cash. There is no taxpayers' money involved. You actually issue bonds. It's a paper-for-paper paper deal. And then the question is not, can we afford to repay the bonds? Because government bonds are never repaid, in effect. You know, it might say we'll repay in 30 years' time, which is how the railways were nationalised in 1947, by the way, in the UK. Um, you know, big bond issue. In 1977, that bond issue was just rolled over and replaced with another bond. Uh, and there's never been a repayment of the cost of nationalising British Rail. Um, it's just being rolled over. So the cost is, how much is the interest on the bond? Well, first of all, the interest on the bond will go down over time because of inflation. Uh, inflation is quite a good thing in paying off debt in this sense. But secondly, um, actually, these companies are already servicing a pile of debt. I was going to say a shit pile of debt, but that's probably inappropriate. Um, but we're okay here. Um, uh, 38p in every pound that is paid in the UK at present is used to service debt or shareholder costs. Unbelievably, 
38p in the pound that I pay for water is actually just a return to the financial services industry, which really shows how important these people think they are when they aren't. But we could redivert that to paying the interest cost on the bonds used to nationalise the water industry and have a margin left over for reinvestment, which at the moment there is none. So I believe we could actually do a deal. I could cut a deal here. Put, you know, set me in a room with a pile of lawyers and a few corporate financiers and the water companies, and we'd come out with a deal whereby the water companies' owners would end up with something for life, when at the moment they're probably sitting on an asset which has got a limited future expectation of income return. And the state would, and what is more, the water consumer would still end up with a deal as well. So we could cut what's called a fair value deal. Uh, it wouldn't be that they get every penny they're probably owed now, but we come up with something, and I believe that would work. So renationalisation is available and would cost the state a net princely sum of the square root of nothing, which is nothing. Mm. Um, and so this argument, oh, from Labour, we can't afford to do it. It would be involving taxpayers' money. Sorry, mimicking Hillary Benn's hand-wringing on this issue over the last day or two. His father would be ashamed of him. I knew his dad. Um, Tony Benn was a great guy. Um, you know, he'd be ashamed of him because that's just not true. No, it's 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 something that we we keep getting told, you know, but if you do that, then you're going to hand it over to the to the public service and they can't deliver things. And then we they, they want you to pretend that actually, by the way, the lights still come on on the road when it gets dark. The roads still are, you can still drive along them relatively safely for the most part. The, the uh, police and, your, uh, and the guardie on, on our streets are there. The doctors and nurses that are paid by the else, they do a generally good, good, good job under difficult circumstances. Our teachers provide health, you know, provide education to our children. All of these services. So the idea that, you know, well, the private guys do it better. That's just bull bullshit now. I'm joining you in, in, in other words. Just absolute bullshit. <laughs> I'm dragging you down to my level here. Sadly, sorry about that. Not at all. I, I, I guess the listeners to this podcast have heard such words before. Clearly, yeah. And, and the other fella is much worse, so we're probably we're probably just as well. I agree. Yeah. I'm missing his presence this morning because he wouldn't have any problem. He would no. be the, mor the moral police that you clearly are. No, <laughs> but, um, no look. Uh, when we come down to it, the state is actually able to supply. And if only the state would pay some decent pay rises to people in all the countries where it isn't right now because of this stupid inflation narrative we talked about earlier, then it could supply even better. It could actually recruit the people it needs. Is the, cap the state capable of supplying some clean water? Look, if he isn't, if the state can't guarantee us clean water, let's be honest about what we're talking about. We're talking about a failed state. Absolutely. Because we can't live without clean water. This is a precondition of our existence. So a state that can't guarantee that has, by definition, failed. Politicians who don't think it's their job to guarantee that we can have clean water are failed politicians. They aren't in the game of delivering the services that we rely upon to live. They really should not be putting themselves up for the election if they can't know how to see how to do that. So this is really existential at that level. 
I think mean, we need to solve this problem. Richard, the Greeks knew how to push the water underneath, uh, under from the from the baths down and, and rush it through under the under the shitters. Let's tell the truth here and flood it out in in a direction out out that it would. And they knew how to do that thousands of years ago. So you know, it's not hard. It's downhill, guys. That's yeah. the direction of travel that you need no, to go with. I'll, I'll, although there was, I was, I was once on a on a on a site of an old Greek city, and um, the the guide said, if you look if you look in that direction, these were the baths where they saw of the fish but if you look in that direction that's where kind of the guy who ran most of this part of the town lived uh, and as you can, as you know and still in, in modern day uh, where where his house is situated uh, money has no smell you know it's not yeah. everything flowed away from <laughs> everything flowed away look um, I think it's a really really fascinating um, listen on the idea of Renationalizing um, utilities that we've lost and growing the public sphere as opposed to shrinking it because that's what we've seen yeah. for and this is goes back to some something that you're very passionate about and that is genuinely a green new deal about you know how we create the infrastructure be it wind energy solar energy and we we have it publicly owned and people can benefit from it and like say so go back and listen to to other conversations we've had and have a look at Richard's blogs. He writes, he, he must not sleep much. He writes that often. But however, I do want to end on a downer. Um, there is no hope in politics currently because we have a situation whereby the Tory party in the UK are in power. They're in power 13 years. Um, they've proven themselves not to be able to do deliver those basics. We're at the stage now whereby they've completely adopted the, the idea of, well, let's get people talking about culture worst issues rather than actual the things that we've been talking about for the last 40 mm-hmm. minutes and then on the flip side you have as I've said it to you before we came on air newspapers that were kind of pro-labour for decades now saying here Starmer is actually more dishonest than Boris Johnson was it's well, we scary had edit- yeah we had an editorial in the Guardian newspaper which is traditionally left wing the left wing broad, yeah, broadsheet as it was centre centre left uh- Centre left. I mean, frankly, I don't even think it's centre left. It's sort of centre. But wherever it's located, it's now saying Steer Keir Starmer believes in himself. But does anybody know what else he believes in? Because mm. there's no evidence of he's actually got any principles, any policies, or anything else. Um, I saw a very nice video which I put up on my um, blog uh, in the last few days. Uh, British in Australia about how their Labour Party is shit light, whereas the um, opposi- the opposition who were in government are the shit party. Uh, Labour is shit light. And we keep on using that word today. But the point is that this is where politics seems to be in the UK. We have the Tories completely bereft of ideas. We have Labour who are trying to copy them, but just be supposedly a little bit managerially better, but not a single idea as to how to deal with the issue. And if I actually look at Ireland, I see there's a whole coalition which seems to be pretty much um, out of ideas as to what to do. And if I look around the world, I see, frankly, a bit of the same. I mean, it's scary that Joe Biden looks like a radical. Um, by actually he gets spending no, money. Yeah, he gets no credit for the successes he'd ha- he's had, given how polarized the politics is there. And it is it is a strange sensation where I find myself almost defending Joe Biden. Um, not particularly maybe the man, but the the delivery of his administration. I mean, job creation. They've they've done a relatively better job in decreasing inflation in certain 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 areas than, than we have in 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 Ireland in the EU and definitely in the UK um and then you you know we talk about the 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 infrastructure that he's he's having to restart 
I mean, there was one real example. I don't know if you saw this, but it was where one uh, a California highway was destroyed, and because there's been lots of these accidents in the US recently, and they said it could be closed for um, up to six months. And whatever way they turned it around, it's it, it took three and a half weeks, and they've delivered this key artery back into one of the main, you know, economic drivers of of the state of California. So this these things, and that doesn't go. That's not to say that this is at Joe Biden's door, but he does get a harder time because they are playing the game of yeah, well, well, what does he? Well, can he define what a woman is? Can he? Um, yeah, can, no. yeah, this nonsense, this absolute. That's always the case now. You know, these stupid. I'm afraid. I mean, I I get all the issues about discrimination. Don't get me wrong. Mm. I understand all that stuff. I've lived with it forever. I mean, I mean forever. Um, mm. I shared a womb. I have a twin brother. Um, he's gay. I'm not. I've understood about the problems of discrimination really throughout my life and seen the real world implications of it. So I don't dismiss any of those issues. But they don't actually give us a reason for not addressing the hardcore problems that we face in society as well around economics, around investment and everything else. We have to be able to manage those two things at the same time. But no, apparently we're not allowed to do that. We're only allowed to talk about these other issues. No, not true. And Biden, for all his weaknesses, and boy has he got them, um, is doing investment. I mean, I just wish he hadn't called his bill the IRA because it <laughs> feels comfortable to some of us. It certainly, it certainly raised a few eyebrows here. <laughs> yeah, it did. Of course it did. But the reality is he is spending in a way that we in Europe are not. And he gets the need to do so. And that's one of the reasons why inflation in America is going down, I think, because they're actually spending, we're not. And that is giving them an economic boost and that's necessary. And so, all round, we are facing this dilemma. As you said, we basically are being denied political hope by the choices that we're being provided with. Will there still be a conspiracy in Ireland to keep ideas out of politics um, at the next election that you have? Yeah, probably, um, because that's what's gone on, bluntly. Um, mm -hmm. There's such a massive beer of Sinn Féin um, that uh, there has been a conspiracy to hold it out of office, which means that compromise between all other parties has gone on to achieve that goal, which has basically led to lowest common denominator thinking. And that's what's going on in the UK and it's going on in other countries. And this is crippling us until we overcome this desperate neoliberal politics and the adherence to that sort of hegemonic, you know, single worldview, we're in trouble. And uh, that trouble is going to spill onto streets. I mean, I'm not surprised that France has exploded. It's not just about the single issue of a 17-year-old dying wholly unnecessarily and probably illegally and probably as a result of some form of racism. And I'll make those suggestions. We're probably carefully attached. But it's not just about that anger. There's no. a much deeper anger uh, going on in France. Um, and it was boiling. And France is more inclined to... Um, Rebel. Um, I, I loved it. The Macron said, "Oh, all these, um, all these troubles are down to video games. Video games. Uh, like, yeah. Yeah. No, France never ever 
went on the streets before video games, did it? Never. What, no. what, what's the what's the um, the 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 old story where someone asked um, a leader of the the Communist Party in China what do they think of the French Revolution, and they said it's too it's too it's too soon to tell. To tell. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah, like, too soon we, to tell. We know we know this, but like yeah, you're right. There is palpable anger. There is palpable anger building. People are disenfranchised, and we are seeing, unfortunately, um, it play out on the streets. I'm surprised we've seen we have seen obviously some of the more disheartening elements of it in 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 Dublin on the streets whereby some it's been expressed as anti-immigrant sentiment and unfortunately that's where the eyes often turn because it's easier to blame the other than actually look at decades of under servicing of of um of socioeconomic deprived areas and people who have not been given a fair crack of the whip the social contract has been torn up and the, and removed so that is absolutely no no qualms me saying that that that, that these are these are communities that have had to fight for resources and now they're saying yeah. that you know you have to suffer some more and that is absolutely where that anger stems from i just wish they'd redirect their anger in it towards a different target um well i mean the media is directing their anger in a particular way and i think yeah. the media is responsible for a lot for the generation of the migration anger um but the reality is that the anger is real it's underpinned brexit we know it did um, if people were saying that the model has failed, um, we're going to kick back against the model. The trouble is, in Brexit's case, the, model, the replacement is even worse. It isn't providing a solution. Um, migration is still an issue. Um, that hasn't changed. Um, you still get the right wing. Um, we've seen a bunch of Tory MPs saying, oh, migration must now be cancelled, as if that will solve any problem in the UK. It won't. The problem is the economic system, which is oppressing people and is going to carry on oppressing people until we have a different political narrative. And right now, we are getting that new political narrative. Instead, we're getting the traditional political parties locking down around the old narrative and saying there is no alternative. Margaret Thatcher's alive and well. The Tina is still with us. And the reality is there is an alternative. There is another option. And we have no choice but do it because if we don't do it, we're going to burn alive on this planet and we're not going to have fresh water either. Apart from that, life's great. Yeah. And on that cheerful note, we may end this podcast, but I will say I will end it on one um, happy thought if people do go back and listen Richard if you if you just check on on our previous podcast and you can check for the one called Another Song We Need Another Song and that is something that you're very passionate about how, how we change that tune and it, it is possible so while, while we've been a bit down today folks there is actually there are alternatives they are out there and Richard is promoting them all the time so thank you so much I know our listeners love hearing from you um, and I really appreciate you giving us our time I'm, so, I'm sure you're probably running off to do the BBC this afternoon so you've been slumming it again with the lads in, in, in the tortoise shack so thanks again Richard really appreciate it Tony and Martin Martin and Tony speaking to interesting people only it's the Echo Chamber podcast subscribe now on page